Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Rapid Change listeners, boy do we have a great interview lined up today. I'm here with James Sakalos, internationally acclaimed NLP trainer and innovator. James has introduced a number of new developments into the field, which is why so many top NLP trainers recommend and indeed train with this man. Spiral Somatics, the 20-minute expertise rapid modeling process, and his commitment to creating thorough and high-quality NLP training courses mean that today should be packed to the rafters with great information. Welcome, James. Thank you very much, Howard. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it really is an absolute uh, honour and privilege to have you. Um, I'm really wondering whether we can jump straight in, uh, and if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, uh, and really how you got started. Sure. Um, well, I'm an NLP trainer in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, what I do, and this is probably quite important for your audience, uh, I don't train therapists. I know a lot of people that are involved in the NLP world have that particular background. It's not really my thing. Um, most of the people that come to train with me are people that are in business for themselves, where their business is their expertise of some kind. Uh, and I also get a few people that are uh, you know, senior managers in large organizations. Um, and the way that I got into this is that I've always been fascinated by the limits of what human beings can do, you know, human potential. So as a young man, I was exploring self-hypnosis and meditation and uh, the silver mind control method, which is kind of like a self-hypnosis thing with some modalities, frankly, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of stuff. And uh, later in my life, a few friends of mine that are in the, into the same kind of stuff uh, came across NLP, and they just saw me written all over it. So they, they came across this stuff and went, oh, my God, this is totally James. Like, James would love this stuff. And uh, so paying attention to them, I began to explore and uh, then was very fortunate to find my way into the company of an extraordinary trainer uh, here in Melbourne. I didn't realize that Melbourne was one of the best places in the world uh, to learn NLP. And uh, as soon as I started on my first NLP practitioner course, I I was hooked. I fell in love um, and I've just never stopped. So what do you think it was that that fascinated you and hooked you into it and you know the the quality of it that that made those people say this is totally james um i think it was i think it was about modeling frankly because modeling is something that i'm very passionate about uh it's something that's that's not very well understood in the field of nlp because not many people put the effort in and actually learn 
how to model. And most trainers don't teach people how to model because they themselves don't have the first freaking clue about how to model. Um, but that's that's really what it was about. It was you know because it's it fundamentally modeling is about finding people who can do extraordinary things. And instead of putting them up on pedestals and going, oh wow, that person's so amazing and special, being able to unpack that and going, you know, here's how they do this. Let's make this into something that anybody can do. Let's take this this extraordinary gift and make it a teachable skill. And uh, the first thing that really captured me in terms of that was uh, I read a book called uh, Patterns of the Hypnotic Techniques of Milton H. Erickson, MD, Volume One, I think it was, mm-hmm. and um, also known as Patterns One for people that don't have time to go into that stuff. Um, and there was an account of an experiment or a series of experiments that Milton Erickson uh, did with a guy called Aldous Huxley. And they, it was just extraordinary. It, and they wrote up how they went about doing this thing and Huxley's experience. And it was just mind blowing stuff. Like, you know, they, uh, Milton offered this guy suggestions for hypermnesia, which is like the, the opposite of amnesia where you can just remember everything, you know? And, uh, they had previously selected a bunch of books from Huxley's library that he hadn't read for like 20 years, 30 years. And Milton, while Huxley was in this altered state, would open up a book at random, he'd read a page from this book and then ask Huxley to tell him the, the name of the book that he was reading from, who wrote it, when it was published, all of that kind of stuff. And he was just getting these things. And in some cases, even continue, like Huxley would then continue on with the gist of the next passage, the next page, the you know this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I remember reading that and just going, that's amazing, like absolutely amazing. And the thing about that is, is that if someone can do this, then it's humanly possible. And if NLP is all about finding out these extraordinary things that are humanly possible and figuring out how to have that happen, then I, we're not, I want in on that. Like, that's, that's what I want to do. That's like, I love that. So that's the thing that really drew me in. I mean, I love that. And it's exactly, you know, the... The, the reason that I, I think it attracts so many people um, that are, are fascinated by how far can we take, you know, what mm. we're capable of. I, I love that. So how did how did the twenty minute expertise rapid modeling process develop and arrive? Uh, well, the way that that developed and arrived uh, was pretty cool, actually. I, um, as part of what I do as a trainer, um, I'm constantly. Uh, aiming for getting some just extraordinary results with people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on a master practitioner course that I was running at one point, uh, I had a group of people who through, for whatever reason, I, I, I just hadn't framed things appropriately or whatever. And um, for whatever reason, I had a group of people who were all able to model implicitly very well, which is modeling kind of without your conscious mind at all, which is where you go into this very special kind of state and just kind of absorb and get things into my, your mus- micromuscular muscle memory, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and really good at doing that. Uh, and they were also really good at doing explicitly modeling, uh, explicit modeling and unpacking uh, people's heuristics and uh, decision strategies and, and that kind of stuff. They were really good at doing these, doing these two things. But a part of the process of modeling, if you want to be really good at modeling, um, when you're modeling explicitly, you need also to be modeling implicitly. You, you, know, you can't be just kind of pulling information of, out of people and treating it as as kind of separate somehow from your experience. You know, you've got to take this stuff on and into you. And so I had a, um, uh, a group full of people who were really good at explicit modeling, but they it's like that was disconnected from their implicit modeling. It was like they, they would either do one or the other. They wouldn't be doing both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so 
had to, uh, on the fly, uh, during a break, I had to come up with some, I had to just like spontaneously come up with some way of creating an exercise which would make it so that um, the way that I approach exercise design is, uh, is, is around something called tasking, which um, you're, you're probably familiar with and some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's, it's about creating a, a task, um, the design, design of which means that for someone to even attempt the task, they must make certain changes inside. And uh, so this is how I go about designing exercises. And so in, uh, in a break at one point, I went, okay, well, I need to come up with a task that will make it so that these people cannot even attempt the task without implicitly modeling while they were explicit mo explicitly modeling. And uh, so I, I came up with an exercise and uh, had never run this exercise before. It was just, but it was a task that would make sure that that happened and uh, presented stats to the group. And uh, they did the exercise and the, uh, the results that came from that were utterly mind blowing. They were beyond anything that I ever expected. So really, uh, you know, you, you talked about magic before um, while we were off the air. And, uh, you know, things that seem magical. And I'm, I'm a big fan of, I mean, the name of my business is Developing Magic. You know, magic is a bit of a theme for me. And uh, um, one of the, uh, the thoughts that I have around that is that there's a science fiction author. Um, I think it's uh, Arthur C. Clarke, perhaps, hmm. um, who, uh, who posited a certain uh, principle that... Um, any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. So if you went back to, to 14th century Spain with an iPhone and you played a video on the phone, people there would freak out and they'd probably set you on fire and burn you at the stake. Because as far as they could tell, that like there'd be no explanation for how the hell that, that could work. Yeah. And so that to them would be indistinguishable from magic, from sorcery, you know. And uh, so taking this principle that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, um, I, in the way that I approach um, designing my trainings and particularly my master practitioner training, uh, a principle that I use is kind of the inverse of that, which is that if something doesn't appear magical, then it's insufficiently developed. <laughs> and the skills that someone has as a practitioner of NLP, for example, do not appear magical, do not appear utterly inexplicable and blow people's minds, then they're not good enough. And so, um, that when I ran that exercise and the, you know, the group did the exercise, the results that came out of that appeared magical to me. And so I just went, holy crap, like that's amazing. I'm going to test this again, you know. And so I tested it again and then I refined it and um, applied it in a few different contexts and then turned it into uh, what is now the 20-minute uh, expertise rapid modeling project, uh, rapid modeling process, my, opinion, my apologies. Yeah. And I, I mean, is it possible that um, not all the NLP trainers that are out there, and certainly mentioning no names, um, don't set their sights quite as high in terms of developing students who can blow people away with the stuff that they're learning and make it appear magical? Yeah, I, I think that standards in, in the field are a really interesting thing. I, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are doing um, what they consider to be really great work. Um, but within the frame of reference that they have, you know, they've experienced certain things, they've experienced certain trainings, they've experienced certain kinds of results. 
um, and there are things that they haven't experienced. And so they're, they're using a baseline that is, that is whatever they, they experience. There's lots of people I know who are of the opinion that what they do is amazing. And to, to me, it's just, it's not that freaking amazing, frankly, because I, I had an extraordinarily high baseline when I, I originally trained with my mentor, um, the recently late Roger Dina. Um, he had exceptionally high standards, exceptionally high standards. And I, I didn't realize how high until I started teaching around the world and, and meeting and, and having people in my training rooms that were, that were NLP trainers from other schools and realizing the level of skill that most of them just didn't have, you know, um, the, uh, the standards that Rog had for himself and for his students um, were not normal. They, they were just abnormal in the field of NLP. And I think, honestly, that that came from his mentor as well, from a guy called Marvin Oka, uh, who was just an absolute freak. He approached uh, NLP and developing his skills as an NLP practitioner and trainer um, with the all of the obsessiveness and perfectionism that came with someone who had a previous career as a professional stage magician. Mm-hmm. And so he had exceptional standards, again, for himself, for his students. And so Rog just kind of carried that on, and I carried that on. And, you know, I thought that was just normal. Uh, but apparently it's not. Because, I mean, it was interesting, and I, and I hope you don't mind me saying, but before we went uh, started recording this, you were telling me Roger uh, was not necessarily... Um, immediately gifted at this, no, that, he'd, uh, that he hadn't even passed his practitioner for however long it was. Yeah. Um, but it was through sheer, sheer force of will. Yeah, absolute persistence. He um, he had not a not a single ounce of natural talent in his body uh, with regards to uh, well anything related to NLP, frankly. And he developed his skills through just complete hard work and persistence. He's not someone who is naturally gifted, in spite of the fact that when people um, met and trained with Rog, they went, oh, my God, this guy's just amazing. Uh, it was all the result of just pure persistence and bloody-mindedness, stubbornness. But you see, what I, what I love about that is, you know, we, this idea of NLP is, I, I can't remember, is, is it... Um, frogs into princes or transformations in one of them they talk about the problem with therapists saying well we're operating out of our gut gut intuition and how do you teach someone someone's just gut intuitions Mm. Um, whereas actually if you go well hey hang on a second if we don't look at it as gut intuitions and we look at it a different way uh, and say well how are they doing that then you know through persistence through effort through attainment we should be able to drive uh, and achieve things that ultimately when we're there will look like oh wow we've just got gut intuitions but it wasn't that it was that there was there was a journey along the way although i i have to say i'm I'm going to disagree about one part of that because it absolutely is that like people do develop extraordinary gut intuitions but that it's 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 just down to what those things are you know there's nothing magical about gut intuitions in my world anyway you know Mm. in my world gut intuitions are things that are the result of unconscious pattern detection. Um, you know, consciously you've got very limited uh, ability to pay attention to things. There's there's only a very small amount of things that you can consciously pay attention to at any moment in time. Um, but unconsciously you're taking in enormous amounts of data all the time. And uh, you know, when you work in a particular field for a long enough period of time, you've just you've massed lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of data that's outside your conscious awareness, and um, that manifests itself as these gut responses, these gut instincts and whatnot, those things are 
just ways that your system has of communicating to yourself um, patterns that you have detected, but you have detected unconsciously. That's um, it's very interesting, and I'm, I'm struggling to remember now, James. There was uh, some footage or a clip of Orson Welles talking about doing some uh, experiments where he was trying to debunk some of the psychics and mediums that were out there. Yep. And he talks about um, learning to, to learning some of the skills of cold reading, and then applying them in that context, pretending that he was a medium, and getting some great results. And the interesting thing is, after he said after three or four days of doing this and getting very good at it. He began to even believe to himself that he was having psychic moments, mm. um, but it was almost that he's, he was he was becoming good at uh, unconscious pattern detection. Um, just changing tracks a little bit, c can you tell us a little bit about spiral somatics? What is it? How would you describe it to someone that's never come across it? How I would describe spiral somatics uh, is that largely it's about the body-mind link. It's about the fact that your body and your mind are not separate by any stretch of the imagination. Everything that you do is embodied. Everything that you think and that you feel uh, is something that occurs inside you as a physical entity. Uh, and these things cannot be separated. And most people are quite familiar with the fact that the mind and body are connected. You know, most people are quite familiar that, you know, if you see someone and they look a little down in the sense that they're, you know, their posture's a little bit curled over and their head's down and they're looking down and they're breathing deep in their stomach and all that kind of stuff, that something different is going on for that person than if they're, you know, nice and erect and upright and, you know, breathing from behind the chest and looking up and big smile on their face. And, you know, most people can kind of intuitively grasp that, when someone is feeling something inside, it's, it comes out in their body. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that link is two-way. And a lot of people are familiar with the fact that that link is two-way. When your body is a certain way, that affects the things that you feel. It affects the things that you think. It affects all of this. None of this is rocket science. None of this is new. Um, and what spiral somatics fundamentally is, is an exploration of that to very, very deep levels. Um, so... You know, because the thing about this is that in all of my explorations, um, I've I've never found even evidence of an end to the degree to which your body and mind are, are connected. It, you know, in my experience, literally anything that is inside you is going to be manifested in your body in some way. And I don't mean that in, in the kind of a you know a hippie kind of way. I mean, it's it's going to show up in your physiology, in, in your posture, in your musculature in your the way that you hold yourself all the, like literally everything that happens inside you not just your emotional responses to things but also the things that you think the things that you feel the the attitudes that you have to different subjects different topics um, the kinds of aptitudes that you know the way that you do the world the you know the things that are common sense to you all of these things actually show up in your body mm -hmm. and uh, you know when people learn spiral somatics they it gets to the point where they're able to make some pretty good educated guesses and test those educated guesses on, you know, when they see someone for the first time, before they even talk to that person, when they just see someone for the first time, they can make some pretty good educated guesses of, uh, you know, what this person believes about life, the universe and everything, what they consider to be common sense, um, the kinds of ideas that they're drawn to, the kinds of ideas that they, they back away from. Um, the kinds of things that, that, you know, that turn them on, that excite them, get fired up, the kinds of things that don't do anything for them, uh, the sorts of things that they uh, fundamentally believe to be important in life, their values, their priorities, 
uh, you know, their aptitudes, the kinds of things that they're likely to be good at, the sorts of skills and abilities that they're likely to already have some skill with, the kinds of things that they're probably not going to be so good at, um, the way that they're likely to respond to different sorts of suggestions, different sorts of topics, how they're likely to get on with different kinds of people. Um, all of that stuff is just is revealed in someone's body. And uh, that's, that's generally the, uh, you know, the kind of thing that gets people interested in learning spirosomatics. Um, but that's, that's only the half of it. That's only the surface half, really. You know, the, the real stuff in spirosomatics is, is about ontological flexibility. It's about developing flexibility in how you do the world. Because by taking advantage of this body-mind link, when you recognize the patterns, when you know the patterns of the interaction between your body and all of those things inside of you, uh, and you begin to develop some control over your body, you can use your own body, you can make fine adjustments in your own body, in your own physiology, in your musculature, in your posture, in your breathing, and all sorts of things, to be able to access, congruently access from the in, inside, uh, whole different ways of doing the world. So you can create quite profound and fundamental change in how you do the world, in your beliefs, in your values, in your aptitudes, in your attitudes, and all of those things, um, simply by using your body as an entryway into those kinds of things. Uh, and that's that's really what it's about. It's about developing flexibility in, in your way of being in the world. So, so and you do teach spiral somatics uh, in Australia or all over the world? Um, well, I teach it in Australia. Up until recently, I've taught it in Australia only as part of my NLP Master Practitioner program. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've just started teaching it as a standalone program here in Australia. Um, standalone, I do teach it elsewhere in the world as well. So I just came back. I was in the UK in... Uh, June, I think, or July, July, was it June in the UK, July, teaching in Edinburgh, and before that I was uh, teaching it in uh, Mumbai in India, um, and uh, I'll be back to the UK next year, I'll be teaching elsewhere next year, I'll probably be teaching in New Zealand at some point, frankly, um, I have a strong suspicion about that, that's uh, on the, uh, the very close horizon. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but that's about the extent of it, I, you know, I'm not someone who um, you know, I've got a, a colleague, Richard Bolstad from New Zealand, um, who travels and trains all the time. He's, uh, you know, he spends nine months of the year or 10 months of the year or something traveling uh, to different places and training. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just not a fan of that. I like to travel. And I used to think that I would like to just be, you know, traveling and teaching all of the time. Uh, but having done it and living in the most livable city in the world for seven years in a row, I believe now, um, I love Melbourne, uh, and I just I like being at home, and so I don't like being on the road uh, that much, you know. So um, I'm not constantly out there teaching it, but I do teach it, you know, various places around the world. Um, when we spoke previously, um, there was something that, that that you talked about that really fascinated me, uh, which was that you you taught a child um, of the age of three, was it to read? Yeah. Um, but that. You know that you were kind of given a reaction where you know people wouldn't or certainly the education system wouldn't take it seriously because teachers just didn't believe it it, it could be that way yeah so i'm fascinated to hear more about that okay um well to start with i suppose i better set the scene because you were of course to that conversation that we had and your listeners uh, weren't <laughs> so um uh, there was a period of time where I was uh, I was living with a a partner who had two small children, um, who whose ages were three and six. And the six-year-old, of course, was uh, he's at school and he's learning how to read. And uh, the three-year-old, younger brother, um, anything his older brother can do, he wants to be able to do. And so so one day, 
um, while I was at home uh, looking after the three-year-old, his name was Felix, whose name still is Felix, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I found myself in a position where Felix came up to me at some points and said, I want to read. I want to be able to read like Sebi. And so I went, okay, well, let's do that then, you know. And I had about 15 minutes with him. And because uh, anyone that's got three-year-olds uh, is aware of the fact that they have kind of limited attention spans, you know. And so after 15 minutes, he, was, he just wanted to be Spider-Man again, you know. But uh, for about 15 minutes, um, I sat down and I did some stuff with him. And uh, his mum uh, his later came home with his older brother from school. And uh, Felix excitedly said, oh, you know, look what I can do, look what I can do. And so his mum's, you know, expecting him to do a somersault or something, you know. But no, he comes up to a table and, uh, you know, and I write a sentence out for him. And at this point in time, like prior to this 15 minutes, uh, he could recognize four words. He could recognize the words mummy, daddy, Felix, and Sebi. And that was it. So that was the extent of his ability to recognize stuff. And uh, so I wrote out a sentence, and it was something like, um, I like to watch TV with Sebi, but Sebi is at school, so I have to wait until mummy and Sebi come home. Mm-hmm. And so I just wrote out a sentence like that, you know, and he read it, you know, and his mum just went, oh, my God, that's amazing. And then... She said, did you practice reading that? And I said, no, he's never seen that sentence before. And she, you know, she just flipped her lid a little bit. And she said, well, what do you mean he's never seen that sentence before? And I went, well, I'll do another one. And so I wrote out another sentence and he read that. And I wrote out another sentence and he read that one. And I wrote out another one and he read that one. And he just kept on reading all these novel sentences. And uh, so his mum just went nuts over this and just went, oh, my God, I went to work today. My, my son couldn't read and now he can. It's like, what the hell, how the hell does this happen? And, uh, you know, and it's all just down to the, you know, because I approach this stuff as a modeler. You know, this is what I do. I'm a modeler. Mm. And so, you know, modeling, uh, for those who might be unfamiliar with this, a good, a good way of thinking about it, a good metaphor is modeling is kind of reverse engineering skills. So it's, uh, you know, taking stuff that people can do and reverse engineering. It's kind of breaking it down and going, okay, well, how did they do this? And so um, from a modeler's perspective, um, rather than approaching reading, because the way that education is often approached um, in the, you know, the mainstream schooling system, and I know there's, there's different approaches to education where people do things differently, but in the mainstream schooling system, certainly in Australia, the way that education is frequently approached um, uh, kind of goes like this. We want this child to be able to do X, whatever X happens so what do we think they need to do first before they can do X? And what do we think they need to do second before they can do X? And what do we think they need to do third before we can do that? You know, And so they make up these ideas of what kids have to do, a process that kids have to go through before they learn something complex. Yep. And it's just it's insane, especially since most of those processes involve you know, teaching or encouraging things, uh, encouraging kids to do things the way that an adult would not, you know. So, uh, you know, to, to start with, for example, you know, with when when kids learn to read, you know, one of the first things they do is they learn the alphabet, which is just the dumbest thing that you could possibly do. Um, because if you're introducing, you know, before a kid can learn to read, if you're introducing the alphabet, what you're introducing is this visual symbol that doesn't mean anything, right? It's not attached to anything in the world, right? Like a dog is a dog, a chair is a chair, right? The letter F is just, it doesn't, it's not a thing. It's not anything. It's just this abstract idea. And so they go, here's the letter F. You know, it's an abstract idea. It's a symbol. But what does it represent? Well, it represents a sound. It represents, it represents 
which is also not a thing. It's, it's, it's another abstract thing, right? It, it doesn't mean anything, right? So they, they teach kids this abstract visual symbol that represents an abstract uh, phoneme, an abstract element of sound that's detached from anything in the world, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then gradually the kids learn that, you know, these are the sounds that are associated with these shapes, and then they put the shapes together and they, they sound things out, you know? And, uh, but here's the thing, like when you as an adult read, you know, if you look at anything in front of you or anything in your visual field right now that with something written on it, I guarantee that you as an adult, sorry, I'm getting a little bit preachy here. <laughs> no, I'm not. I love it. I'm loving it. I, I guarantee that you as an adult, when you look, so I'm looking at, for example, right, I'm, I've got a word that's uh, on a screen in front of me and the word is standard, right? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at and I do not when I look at that word I do not as an adult look at that word and look at the first letter the letter on the, the left right and go that's that squiggly shape that stands for s, right and the next one is that you know the, the one with the two lines and so that and that stands for t right so that's s, t, s, t. like I, that doesn't happen in my head at any stage I didn't even look at the letters real like I'm not looking at words letter by letter I look at a word and I recognize the word I know what that word is I don't need to look at the individual letters. I look at the word. I know what that word is. I recognize it. It's a shape, right? And this is the thing about it. When you, I'm getting extremely preachy here. Um, when you consider uh, any letter of the alphabet, what it fundamentally is, it's a shape, right? It's a visual shape. It's a symbol that represents something or other, but it's a visual shape, right? And there's no inherent difference between recognizing one shape and recognizing another shape. There's just more squiggly bits. That's all, you know? And so as adults, the way that you read is you read by recognizing words. You don't read by looking at letters and sounding shit out, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, people have this, this idea that kids need to start by learning the individual letters of the alphabet and then sounding things out and then eventually going to small words and then bigger words and all that kind of stuff. Like shapes are really hard for them, right? But you take a kid that watches Dora the Explorer, right, and they can recognize Dora. Right? Dora is a complex shape, but they recognize Dora. They recognize map. Map is a complex shape, but they recognize map. They recognize all of these things. And if Dora's turning sideways, they still know that that's Dora. If Dora's facing you, they know that's Dora. If Dora's facing the left, they know it's Dora. If Dora's facing the right, they know it's Dora. They recognize complex shapes. And they can recognize, you know, any child that can recognize different characters from a TV show can recognize a word. Right? It's just a visual shape. It's the same thing. And so, and this is how adults read. Adults read by recognizing words. We don't read by looking at letters and sounding things out. That's, it's not how we do it. Mm-hmm. And so when you reverse engineer how adults read, uh, it's much better, right? So I had 15 minutes with Felix and uh, I'm going to learn how to recognize a bunch of words, you know, and then any arrangement of those words, you can read those as sentences, you know. And uh, the, uh, you know, the thing about that is that his mum at that point you know, freaked out and uh, was very joyful, very happy about this. And so, of course, told all of her friends, you know, and her friends couldn't believe it until they came over and saw Felix reading things and they still couldn't believe it. And then she had some friends that were primary school teachers and the primary school teachers in particular didn't believe it because that's not possible, right? Except it clearly is because it just happened in front of your eyes, you know, and the, the sting in the tail of this one is that I had another two sessions with Felix of about 10 to 15 minutes apiece over mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks. And that was it, because it's it was just driven by his interest, you know. So yep. a few days later, he said he wanted to read again, and I'm like, okay, let's do some more reading. And then again, a week after that, let's do some more reading. And that was it, literally. It was three sessions of 10 to 15 minutes each, where I just kind of extended on that initial work. 
And uh, but the sting in the tail of this is that at some point after that, um, myself and Felix's mom um, parted ways. Uh, our relationship ended. We went our separate ways, and time marched on. And so you know, Felix was three. Right? I got a a, a message from Felix's mum some years after that, when Felix started school. And uh, Felix, I, I don't know if this is the case elsewhere, but in Australia, certainly in Victoria, um, there's, uh, you know, grade one, grade two, grade three, etc. And before grade one, there's a grade called prep, which when I was at school was called kindergarten. Hmm. Um, here it's called prep. And uh, in those early years, um, in the schools here, they have mixed classes. And so they have a class, they've got a teacher who's responsible for a group of cheap children, some of whom are in prep, some are in grade one, and some are in grade two. And so, uh, you know, I, I got a message from Felix's mum, uh, you know, years after we parted, not very many years, but years nonetheless after we parted. And she said, uh, Felix just got his first report card. Um, he's in this mixed class. He's in prep, and he's a class of uh, you know kids that are in prep in grade one and grade two. And he is by far the best reader in the class. He's a couple of years advanced past the grade twos. Hmm. And so it's not like he just learns to read those sentences or he just learns to read those words. Words. He developed a strategy for reading which works, and that stuck, and it still has stuck. And teachers will still go, oh, yeah, but that's not possible, except that it, it's, it's right there in front of you. So one of my questions, because, I mean, I, I, and you're right, if a, if a child can recognize Dora the Explorer, a complex, you know, uh, set of visual information into something that means something, why can't they do that with another example of that, a word? Um, it makes total sense to me when, you, when I look at it like that. Um, I, I, the thing that fascinates me, though, is that people, and time and time again I hear, will see something proof of something witness something that they go yeah and still not believe it yeah and so how how does that happen um i it's it's pretty stunning it's uh, you know people are really good at justifying things people are really good at coming up with excuses for things you know um i mean that starts pretty early in life frankly i think mm. um we you know we have this wonderful capacity we've got this excuse making capacity when we have ways of of, you know, reframing and justifying and excusing any number of different things. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it's, it, you know, it starts with a, uh, well, yeah, well, that's just because and something or other, you know. Mm. I remember some, <laughs> this was hilarious. I remember once I um, uh, demonstrated a little bit of work with um, uh, a friend's brother um, who's not an LP, who'd heard about all of this, you know, this, this cool stuff that you can do with NLP. And uh, so I demonstrated some stuff, you know, I, I, he was freaked out about spiders and I just did a quick little thing. And then all of a sudden now he's fine with spiders, you know, and uh, he went, well, yeah, but I mean, that was, that's really, that's just, that's like hypnosis. Like, so it doesn't count or something, right? Like mm -hmm. he, he could have said just anything, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, one of the things that really gets me that, that does my head in. Because I think this is absolutely magical and amazing and, and worthy of incredibly deep study is the placebo effect, right? For decades, people have done research indicating that there's this thing called the placebo effect, right? That under certain circumstances, people will 
will get better. You know, symptoms will change. They'll change. All sorts of things will happen in response to nothing other than the placebo effect. And the way that people talk about that is to go, well, you know, that's just the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Right? And in my mind, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, something is happening there. Like, calling that a just and dismissing it like that's nothing. You know, yeah. like, people can spontaneously have extraordinary results due to the placebo effect. Oh, yeah, but that's just the placebo. No, there's something going on there. That's that's worth studying. This is a big deal, you know. Like, how does that work, you know? I I, I I got to tell you just to, just to cut in because uh, a story popped into my head absolutely true about three four years ago uh, at a time when I was suffering from hay fever which uh, magically has uh, for various reasons cured uh, or, or dissipated and disappeared um, uh, but I used to the only relief I got because medication didn't work was I had what was called a coochie band which uh, mm-hmm. applies an acupressure point on a particular place on your elbow. And it made me look uh, like I had tennis elbow. I had this like bandage thing that I used to wear, um, but it did help. Um, and I walk into a place, and a, a friend of mine was su- terrible sufferer, streaming from the eyes, and he was, you know, sneezing and stuff. And he goes, "Oh, what, have you hurt your arm, Howard?" I went, "No, no, it's a coochie band. It gets rid of hay fever. It's, it's, it's amazing." And he went, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, try it." So I take it off, and I start sneezing now. Mm-hmm. And he puts it on, stops sneezing stops his eyes clear up and after five minutes uh, i said oh you're looking better he went yeah but he goes that's just the placebo effect i don't want any of that and takes it off and starts sneezing again that's amazing isn't it what what to this day i still don't understand why why you would look down on something that's just so amazing even if it is just that yeah mind-blowing so what would you what would you say to someone when if they said well the stuff you do is just a placebo effect? Uh, I would go well okay because <laughs> here's uh, here's the thing like I, I don't train therapists mm-hmm. you know so I, I don't often get that kind of thing you know um, I get I get different kinds of things you know I get things like uh, um, well yes you know this this person might have for, for, you know might seem to have transformed the way that they relate with people and might seem a lot more confident now and might seem to have these incredible skills and the gift of the gab and all that kind of stuff. But really, they're still the same person deep inside, you know. And, uh, you know, and that that one does my head in, but I've, I've got a, a really simple frame for that, you know, because most people get, most people have this idea that they have this kind of fixed identity, you know, and they, they you know, no doubt you've heard people use the expression um, oh, I couldn't do that. That's just that's I'm just not that kind of person. That just wouldn't be me, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I've got this fixed sense of who I am and who I'm not. And this is who I am. This is what defines my identity. And I'm in a box, basically. This is me in a box, you know. And they've got this sense that their identity, that they're you know, they're, the essence of themselves is fixed in some way. And uh, but the thing about that is that most people intuitively get that, you know. So for you, for example. You clearly, and I would be willing to bet that you intuitively get that you are fundamentally not the same person that you were when you were a toddler. You're not the same person that you were when you were a two-year-old. You're not the same person you were when you were a three-year-old, right? The, the three-year-old you and the you today, very, very different people, yep. you know? And people get that idea, right? But the principle in that, by extension, means that you are not the same person you were last week, 
You're not the same person you were five years ago. You're not the same person you were last year. You're not the same person you were six months ago. If you're not the same person you were when you were three years old, then you're not the same person you were last week. Right? It's a little bit like language. You know, language is constantly evolving. I had, uh, um, you know, frequent a bit of back and forth between myself and and my mentor Roger when we were co-training together, because uh, that was something that happened at a certain stage in my uh, my development, and. Um, uh, Roger's someone who's, uh, ex- despite the fact that he lived in Australia for decades, was nonetheless incurably Brit- British and, you know, referred to us colonials and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and was very particular about language, you know. He's someone that today would be described as a grammar Nazi, mm-hmm. you know, very particular about language, about the Queen's English, not what Americans speak, but the Queen's English, you know. And... Uh, so he had this this kind of notion. He had this relationship with language, that language, that the English language in particular is a certain way and should be a certain way because that's the rules. That's how it should be, you know. Mm. Whereas I, uh, you know, having studied a bit of linguistics, um, knew that language is something that is constantly evolving. Um, you know, the way that we use language is evolving. The meanings of words even evolve. You know, all sorts of things evolve and change over time. And uh, if this were not the case then, you know, because it's not like, if you think about Shakespeare, you know, it's not like there was a point in history where someone flicked a switch and we went from speaking Shakespearean English to modern English. You know, that that never happened. There was no switch. There was there was nothing like that that happened. The language just gradually evolved. It gradually changed, you know. And the same principle applies. You know, we're constantly evolving. We're constantly changing. And, you know, the fact that you can see that if you look back hundreds of years ago and you can see that, you know, people were speaking English differently. They were speaking Shakespearean English, for example, and that's different from the language that we speak today. But you can realize that there was no switch that anybody flipped. And that was a gradual transition that language is constantly evolving. Uh, you know, if you get the idea of that, then you can get that the fact that you can look back at you when you were three years old, realize that you were a totally different person then and realize that there was no point where there was a switch. You have just constantly been evolving. You've constantly been upgrading the way that you perceive things, the way that you believe things, the way that you do things in the world. Your tastes change. Everything is constantly changing. You are not the same person you were last week. And so when people, um, you know, see some of my students, for example, who are doing different things and they're responding differently to things in the world and things don't bug them anymore and they've got so much more confidence and they're so much more relaxed and they're so much more, you know, able to solve problems and and get to places that they want to get to. And and when people see those people, they go, yeah, but he's still the same person. When that happens, um, I'll usually offer that frame. You know, you're not the same person you were when you're a three-year-old, so you're not the same person you were last week. People are constantly changing. It's an illusion the idea that your identity is fixed, that this is who you are, is an illusion. It's not real. Well, I, I love that frame uh, because it makes it, it actually seems more outrageous that people would keep a problem or keep some, keep or maintain any sense of what's going on uh, in light yeah. of that. Like it seems more miraculous that change wouldn't happen than it would. Yeah, it is. That stumps me. It's amazing when that happens. You mentioned, James, in the rapid fire round. Um, can you think of a concept or an idea that you used to believe was true, but you've subsequently changed your mind about? And I loved the mm. fact that you said, well, you're changing your mind all the time. Mm. You know, uh, and you talked about a frame, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, this maybe frame. Uh, and that was yeah. really interesting. I was wondering whether you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that. The maybe frame, yeah. Um, well, Robert Anton Wilson was uh, of the view 
that, and it's it's kind of a sensible view, frankly, that you know most of the problems in the world kind of stem from people being really certain about things, people being really certain about you know I understand what's true and I know that I'm right, and you know somebody else has a different perspective, then that may, and I know that I'm right, then that means that they must be wrong, uh, so they're either um, not very bright. Um, or they're being, you know, they're faking and they're maliciously, uh, you know, having some kind of evil intent or something like that, you know, um, or they're dangerous or they're misinformed or they're whatever it might be. And, you know, I need to let people know that, no, 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 what, you know, I'm right. And, of course, they're doing exactly the same thing. And uh, at a, a, you know, at a really small level, um, this uh, small level, uh, you know, at a relatively day-to-day level, let's say, you know, this manifests itself in, um, you know, people having different disagreements at work, for example, where someone thinks that the best way to do a particular task, to do a particular project is by doing this. And someone else knows that that person is clearly wrong and that the best way to do it is this, you know, and arguments break out, you know. And because when two people are equally certain that they're right, that just creates conflict. And uh, the thing about it is, is that there's very little that we can actually be certain of, you know. Humberto Maturana, who was the, uh, you know, Gregory Bateson, uh, was a, a mentor to the, the creators of NLP. And towards the end of his life, someone asked him, uh, is there anyone who's carrying on kind of the, the, you know, the theme of your work? And he said, yeah, there's a, a, a biologist in Chile called Humberto Maturana who's, who's following similar themes, you know. And uh, Humberto Maturana um, puts it really nicely where he says, you know, the, the only thing that we can really know, the only thing that I can really know is that uh, I seem to be an experiencer experiencing. Uh, anything beyond that, um, I don't really know for certain. And, uh, you know, my favourite, coming back to Robert Anton Wilson, with regards to that, my favourite Robert Anton Wilson quotes, which people that have trained with me have heard me say many times, is, uh, I don't believe anything, but I have many suspicions one of the things that I strongly suspect is that a world independent of or at the very least external to my senses exists in some sense. This is someone who is really committed to maybe logic. You know, I suspect that there's an outside world, you know, outside of my brain. <laughs> that's some serious to maybe logic, you know. Maybe. Well, maybe. That's true. <laughs> exactly. Oh, dear. Tell me, James, what, what would, if there are people listening, um, and they know obviously that this is uh, about rapid change, um, I often like to get guests and people that I'm talking to to give some examples of, of situations or times where rapid change has occurred. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk us, uh, tell us uh, one or two. Oh, God, there's heaps. Most of the time um, when, because uh, again, when people come to train with me, you know, mostly it's it's people that are in business for themselves or people who are in business. And so the kind of stuff that I, um, I tend to respond to in a training room is either around learning, um, in which case people can experience quite rapid change, um, or it's uh, around the, the way that people experience their life, experience their day-to-day life. I tend not to deal with um, you know, because I'm not a therapist, I don't, I don't kind of get people that have depression and anxiety and and all that kind of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I do get a lot of people who, um, uh, you know, there's this one person at work who every time, every time they say anything 
about this project. It's just like, oh, it just sets off something. In, it just pushes a button in me and I just lose my shit and I lose all reason and I just I fly into it. It's totally not useful and, and and it's just so hard to work with this person now. You know, stuff like that. And um, those kinds of things change uh, incredibly quickly. Whenever something like that presents itself, you know, I'll usually just – um, you know, demonstrate a relatively quick process, something like for any number of different things, you know, a submodality shift or collapse anchors or an anchor chain or, you know, any number of different things. Um, and, uh, you know, in a matter of, of no time flats, all of a sudden this person in the context of the training room, all of a sudden this person now is trying to find the response that they used to have, which is always fun to watch people do. Um, and, you know, people always go into this state of puzzlement going, what? I know that I, that used to piss me off. But I'm sure it used to piss me off. Surely if I think about it hard enough, I can still get it to piss me off. What, why can't I find this, you know? And, uh, and that's fine. But then what happens is they go back into the world. And in many cases in the training room, they're a little bit skeptical. Right? In the training room, they go, well, yeah, okay, I feel differently about this. But that person's not here. You know, what's going to happen when I go back into that situation? What's going to happen when I go back to work on Monday and I have to talk to that person again, you know? And uh, so that, and because I do my trainings in a modular format, um, what happens is that's actually a lie. It's a lie to describe it as a modular format, but it's, it's broken up over a long period of time. Um, what happens is, you know, we have a few days training and then people go back into the world. They incorporate the things that they learned. They do stuff in the world because that's the only way to develop skill. Uh, and then they come back and we start by debriefing, you know, what's, how did you do stuff in the world? And what invariably happens is, you know, people come back and uh, they go, it was so weird. You know, I, I honestly expected, you know, I, I had my guard up. I was ready as soon as this person opened their mouth. Like I was, I, you know, I was just ready to get fired up and all of that kind of stuff. But it was just nothing. I just, I just didn't care. It just didn't seem to me anymore, you know. Like I've got a friend um, called Shady, and uh, Shady is someone who, before his NLP, I didn't know this until years afterwards. But before he he started doing uh, this training and, and coming through this process, um, he had a nickname. His friends all used to call him Buttons because it was so easy to push his buttons, and they would make a game of it. You know, if he was he was sport for his friends. Basically, they had a thousand different ways that they knew that they could just poke him and and get him pissed off. Basically, get him to, to react to something. And uh, he was so renowned for this that they literally called him buttons for that reason. And uh, he uh, he then found that he needed to kind of re-enter his social world and and develop some new ways of doing his socializing with people because that's a game that played with him and they couldn't anymore because nobody could push his buttons you know every nothing would face him anymore you know and uh, and that kind of thing is just normal that's not you know when, when people talk about you know rapid change and and that's uh, that, that's just normal like that's this stuff is 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 fairly straightforward as long as you don't get into meaning you know the, the trick is that people get into meaning they they think that you need to understand things they think that you're uh, you know, there's, there's some kind of deep-seated reason that something is the way that it is, like the universe has got this plan for me or whatever it might be, you know, but if you, and, and that's looking at things through the filter of meaning, through the, the filter of, um, you know, what meaning am I making of this and, and why is this happening and all that kind of stuff. But if you look at things instead through the, the filter of process, if you, you look at human beings in terms of what fundamentally is happening, not, you know, what meaning is being made, but What's happening here when you, you know, the people who are best at NLP or the people who get 
NLP to fastest, not necessarily the people that are best at NLP, but the people who get NLP to fastest, uh, people that approach human beings and human experience with the mind of an engineer rather than the mind of a philosopher, rather than the mind of a, a, a psych student or something like that, rather than looking at meaning and patterns and significance. When you just look at function and you go, how does this work? And how do we get it to work differently? Things become really simple. So what would you suggest to people out there who wanted, given that uh, obviously your ex experience, uh, certainly in training, what would you advise people to do in terms of practicing and refining their skill sets? Uh, practice, practice in the real world, practice with, practice in non-controlled situations. It's important to practice in controlled situations so that you're, um, you know, in a space where you're not under stress, not under pressure and whatnot. And that's a good thing to to do to kind of get the you know the general gist of something but then you need to find out how things work in the world because um, you know the thing that a lot of people do is they they learn certain things you know one of the reasons that I, I structure my training the way that I do is that people have to go out into the world and do things and then they come back and they report about what happened because no matter where you're learning so if you're in a training room or something you know and you're even if you've got the best trainer in the world you know, and you're in a training room and you're doing exercises and you're learning how to, to do these, these extraordinary things or seemingly extraordinary things. The context of that exercise is you're working with exercise partners who were there for the instructions, who know what you're doing. They know how it's supposed to play out. Um, they, they like you. They're friends with you. If, you know, if you're doing an exercise and you're taking turns, then they know that at some point it's going to be their turn. And so... If they don't go along with you, then maybe you you know they want to they want their life to be easy you know, and mm. so it's it's kind of an artificial environment you know people in the world don't respond the way that your exercise partners in uh, in a seminar or in a training in a workshop are going to respond, you know one of the 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 things that I I frequently tell people in terms of uh, information gathering and stuff. Um, is that there's there's a number of ways of gathering information. There's a number of things where you might want to kind of poke and find out how people do things. And sometimes that involves asking questions. And the thing about it in the world is that no one is ever obliged to give you the information that you want. And what happens is when you ask someone a question in the world, they will just respond however the hell they respond. They may answer your question, they might ask a question about you. They might go, why are you asking me that? What's what, what, That's a weird thing to ask, you know. They might just start talking about what they did yesterday. They might go, oh, well, see, the thing is, right, like when I was 16, I had this strange experience. Actually, do you know what? I was talking to Trevor the other day, right? and they just go on, on whatever tangents they go on because they are not obliged, they are never obliged to give you the information or to give you the response that you want. They're only ever obliged to respond however the hell they respond. Mm. And they can respond in a million different ways. And if you're not uh, in the habit of experiencing what it's like when people respond in a million interesting and unpredictable ways, then you have no way of responding to that. You know, you've, you've got to, to learn what happens in the world when people just go off in random directions and how to how to how to get the information that you want or how to get the responses that you need in situations like that rather than in controlled environments where people will just kind of follow along with the process as it were yeah i and that's that's absolutely my finding um with with, with, with trainings i remember coming out of my first practitioner course and it was a seven day um and feeling amazing, confident that I could help 
uh, you know, sort out all sorts of issues um, because perhaps, um, you know, everyone for the seven days had been tenderized people who had been there on the same course and I'd been working with them and suddenly you go and meet someone in the real world and it was different. Yeah. It, it was different. I'm going, oh, they're not supposed to do that. Um, James, have you got any books that you could recommend to our listeners uh, that would be useful for them to, to, to read if they want to learn more about this stuff? Um, I'm not a fan generally of recommending books. Um, that's that's a <laughs> this may very well be to do with that particular I, piece I, sus- of work. I suspected that might be the case when yeah. you told me that uh, on the rapid yeah. fire round. Um, okay. Um, uh, but also, there's there's actually a reason for this, um, and uh, if you don't mind, I'll I'll, no. I'll just talk just, just for a second. The thing about reading books is that what you fundamentally have is when you've got a book open in front of you. If it's a paper book, you've got a piece of paper that's got little dots of ink on it. You know. Uh, If you've got a digital book, then you've got a screen that's got little pixels on it, you know, and these are abstractions. That's that's they're just little symbols, you know, and in order for you to they're not connected with anything in order for you to make sense of that. What you have to do if you've got a piece of paper with dots of ink on it, you look at a piece of paper with dots of ink on it and you have to make up in your head what you think that probably means. And so you'll then create these images in your mind, you'll create these sounds internally, you'll create this kind of internal reference, this imagined reference for what you think that probably means. But it's not based on actual experience, it's based on dots on a piece of paper. You've just invented, you've just, you've kind of created this idea inside your head. And then uh, what sometimes happens is that when you come to have a live experience, you will then filter that live experience with reference to the ideas that you have in your heads that are not actually based on real experience. They're based on dots on a piece of paper. And so, uh, you know, it's not particularly useful for learning. Uh, Books are fantastic after you've had live experience. And so, for example, if, you know, if someone's learning hypnosis, for example, my my suggestion would be go and get some live experience, get some hypnosis training, go to some kind of practice group, do some stuff, whatever you do, but get live experience first. So you've got those references internally. And then when you come to read afterwards, then you can make a lot more sense out of those dots on paper because you can construct meaning out of those on the basis of things that you experientially know to be the case. You can make a lot more useful meaning out of that. So I recommend books as an after you've had some live experience. I always will recommend that you get live experience first, whether that's going to a training, whether that's just finding someone who's got some skills that you want and getting them to show you some stuff whether it's going to a study group or a practice group or whatever it is, but just any way for you to experientially get some stuff is what I will always recommend. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, tell me, James, when people are listening to this and they love uh, your take on things, what you've got to say, where, where can they go to find out more? What, what are your links? They can go to www.nlpmelbourne, that's M-E-L-B-O-U-R-N-E, that is the world's most livable city for the seventh year in a row. This is fantastic. So nlpmelbourne, M-E-L-B-O-U-R-N-E, dot com dot A-U for Australia, nlpmelbourne.com.au. Uh, or you can go to, uh, you can just follow me on Facebook uh, as well. You can go to facebook.com front slash, strangely enough, NLP Melbourne. Same thing again, facebook.com front slash NLP Melbourne, M-E-L-B-O-U-R-N-E, and you'll find me there. Well, look, James, I've really enjoyed this, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, and I hope certainly our listeners uh, have too. Um, so really appreciate your time today. 
Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. <laughs>